exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Before we get rolling tonight, I want to give a very, very special shout-out to my engineer, Rob. This is going to be his last show um, for Exposure. He has been my engineer for over two and a half years now. I know he was here before I was here, and... uh, So a special shout-out for Rob. He is a med student that is now going to do his residency at a hospital in Traverse City. So best of luck to you, Rob. Thank you for being there in the good times and the bad here at Impact Exposure. And now to news. In World News Day, Egypt's ousted President Hosni Mubarak and his two sons are to be tried over the deaths of anti-government protesters. Mr. Mubarak, who is ousted in February, is being detained at a hospital in the Red Sea Resort of Sharm al-Sheikh, according to the BBC. He and his wife also face allegations of illegally acquiring wealth while they were in the power for 30 years. In national news, in Joplin, Missouri, at least 117 people were killed by an F-4 tornado, and more than 1,000 are unaccounted for, according to the New York Times. It's the worst tornado to hit the United States in 64 years, and it surpasses the death toll of Michigan's worst tornado, which struck in 1953. The 1953 Flint-Beecher tornado killed 116 people in a community just north of Flint. The F-5 tornado is listed as the country's 10th deadliest tornado. In Michigan news, Michigan public universities face a 15% cut in state aid for operations under terms of a budget bill moving through the state legislature, according to Michigan Public Radio. The Republican-led Senate approved the higher education funding bill by a 21-16 to vote today, mostly along party lines. The measure is expected to get approval in the House and be sent to Governor Rick Snyder this month. Universities could lose more money if they don't limit tuition increases to around 7%. And on Exposure Tonight, we'll be talking more and recapping from TEDx Lansing, what happened last, which happened last weekend. We'll talk to some presenters um, from there. We'll also talk to talk with Chris Hansen. He is an MSU alum who is now a correspondent for Dateline NBC. And also on the show, we will talk to MSU student Erica Sheckle, and she will talk about her 10-day trip on the Freedom Ride. It commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Ride to promote civil rights in America. But now, One Lansing High School is looking to change its reputation with a rigorous academic program. Impact Exposure's Emmanuel Berry visited Lansing Eastern to see how the International Baccalaureate Program is changing the school. Joshua Passway left the sunshine of Sydney, Australia to attend high school in Michigan. Why, you ask, would anyone leave Australia for Michigan? I'll let him tell you. Yeah, I came to America at just to attend Eastern to do the IB diploma. IB, short for International Baccalaureate, started in the 1960s as a college preparatory program for diplomats' children. Today, schools around the world have adopted the IB diploma program, which has been recognized by universities for its tough standards. To receive an IB diploma, students must, one, take a total of six courses in different subject areas and pass exams in each of these areas. Exams are not the -the run-of-the-mill. For example, a student in IB English must write two timed papers and give an oral presentation after only 20 minutes of preparation. Okay, back to diploma requirements. Two, students must write a 4,000-word research paper on whatever they want. Three, they must take an additional class called Theory of Knowledge, basically a philosophy class about how you learn. Four, students must participate in community service. Students who meet all of these requirements can receive an IB diploma. But for those students who only want to take some IB classes, they can earn IB certificates. In the end, either way, students who participate in IB get college credit if they score high enough on their exams. In the eighth grade, Joshua discovered an IB school in Australia. But it came at a high price because all the schools in Australia were that had IB were grammar schools, which were 20000 a year to 15000 So I had to look somewhere else, and I happened upon Eastern, and someone um, from my family lives here, so it was kind of convenient. Joshua may find it convenient to travel thousands of miles to go to a Lansing school, but 
Most people in the Lansing area are probably flabbergasted by Joshua's decision to attend Eastern High School, or an inner city school in general. Located in the heart of downtown Lansing, a lot of people think Eastern is both dangerous and academically underachieving. Eastern has failed to meet the No Child Left Behind standard several times. Most people are leaving Lansing schools, not coming in. All right, head out. Great, thanks, Steve. Get in. That's Madeline Nash driving her three daughters out of Lansing for school. She said one of the reasons she sends her kids out of district is because she knows her children will receive a quality education elsewhere. Because Lansing schools... Just they don't perform as well as other school districts. Students and staff at Eastern are trying to change the negative image of a Lansing education through IB. Eastern was certified as an IB school in 2006 after instructors underwent training. Eastern IB coordinator Emily Oberlitner said more students at Eastern are taking IB classes each year, but many people still see Eastern as a failing school and are unaware that IB exists at Eastern. It is definitely a slow and building thing. Um, It seems that the community of Lansing is um, just learning about being a player in the international world. You know, many people have never heard of IB, so that's interesting. Um, But at the same time, there have been parents of students who have completely sought out the program, and they want their kids to be a part of that program. Although it may be growing slowly, the program is definitely growing. Oberlittner says there are plans to extend IB from kindergarten to the 12th grade. What's interesting to note about Romeo's speech here? That's Eastern teacher Emily Turner working with her freshman IB students on Romeo and Juliet. Turner said IB will bring people to Eastern, a big deal for a school district which lost almost a third of its students in the past seven years. So it's it's exciting to see it grow, and I think by word of mouth, and as um, IB becomes a little more mainstream in education vernacular, I think that we're getting a lot more students from out district and within our district that choose Eastern. <laughs> In a few weeks, Eastern senior Leanne Ramirez will graduate from Eastern with IB certificates. She sees IB as a way to improve Eastern's reputation. When you look, yeah, I have my high school diploma, but getting an international baccalaureate diploma is just something like that's just so great, and it's bigger than, you know, it's just something going beyond. And so, and I just want to continue to see keep that growing because, I mean, Eastern already has a bad reputation, and that would just improve it so much. Ramirez recognizes that Eastern has its problems, but at the same time, she hopes people recognize what Eastern's IB program has to offer. People like Joshua Passway, who made a thousand-mile move for an IB education. When I asked Joshua if he had any regrets... Um, absolutely not. I would, I would do it again, and I mean, if you really dig into what the IB is, it's a world class education it's an international education it's international minded and it makes you aware of your society and i think that's a really important thing and once joshua has finished all his hard work in ib he plans to attend an ivy league school and study neuroscience for impact exposure this is emmanuel berry you're listening to impact exposure For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. 
You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is David Hornack. He is an elementary school principal in Holt, and he was a featured speaker at TEDx Lansing last weekend. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Emily. I'm happy to be here. Talk a little bit about your presentation that you gave at TEDx Lansing. Well, my presentation was centered on how the community can support schools. And uh, as a former kindergarten teacher, I started out uh, by reading uh, a portion of Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. It's an ele uh, elementary school story about uh, uh, several letters climbing the coconut tree, eventually tumbling out of the tree. And the message I was trying to get across was uh, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, regardless uh, if you have children or are planning to have children or not interested in having children, schools need you more uh, now than ever. And what do you think are the biggest challenges facing Michigan schools right now? Uh, clearly, we are uh, in uncharted waters uh, economically. Um, uh, budgets are uh, continuing to change. Uh, some of the struggles for long-range planning continue to be, will we have uh, resources available to support our students? And uh, if we do have those resources, are we using um, our budgets uh, efficiently and effectively? And how can we tackle these issues? Well, like I said in the TEDx uh, uh, presentation, now more than ever, we need to be calling on the experts around us, whether um, they are our current parents or community members, to help us come up with innovative ways to to support our children. And what innovative things have you done at your school? Well, that's a great question, and I appreciate you asking me that. Uh, we are uh, being asked to prepare children uh, for jobs that have yet to be prepared. Um, and so we're, we are doing uh, some things such as planting vegetable gardens. We are, we are trying to create well-rounded students, the, the, uh, the whole child. In addition to uh, all of the academic rigors, uh, we find that uh, planting a vegetable garden allows children to connect with the curriculum uh, in more authentic ways. So that's one way. Um, we also know that when our children exercise before school, they, they have a tendency to sustain their, their active engagement time longer throughout the day, and our behavior referrals, uh, office behavior referrals, tend to drop dramatically. So we've established, in partnership with the Safe Routes to School uh, surveys, that is um, uh, uh, the walking school bus. And the walking school bus is in, in her, at Horizon Elementary in Holt, is an opportunity for children to uh, start at a location, a satellite location, uh, up to two miles away from school and walk in uh, daily with uh, an approved adult. And we, we're finding that academically uh, there's advantages to, to the wellness initiatives we have. Now, you mentioned before you started talking about the garden program, you are saying you're preparing um, your kids for, for jobs. And that seems a little early, elementary school, talking about preparing them for the job market. Yes, and, and really, when we go back to the TEDx uh, conversation, um, when we go back to the TEDx conversation, we have to uh, look at um, Sir Ken Robinson, who is a TED uh, speaker, and he speaks frequently about why are we date stamping children, such as the class of 2011. He that that resonates with me, and I'm wondering why we are doing school the way we do school. So uh, we need to have um, uh, more technology in our schools. We need to have more well-rounded opportunities because we don't know what those jobs will be in, in 10, 15, 20 years. So we just heard a feature by um, Impact's Manuel Barry talking about the, the IV school in, in, in Lansing and saying how you know, a lot of people are trying to leave the Lansing school districts because they, you know, see it as a failing school. So I'm curious, how can schools like Detroit or Lansing do what Holt is doing when they don't have as many resources as Holt does? Again, I think it's uh, thinking more creatively, uh, searching uh, out uh, some of the opportunities in the community to partner with. I, I have great uh, respect for what Lansing is doing, and, and I keep a close eye on what Lansing's doing. Um, alternative school calendars is something I also mentioned in our TEDx uh, conversation. Horizon Elementary in Holt is a year-round school, and that's a little bit misleading. That doesn't mean we go to school 360-plus school days. It means we choose to go to school uh, throughout the school year and take uh, periodic breaks um, to be considered a uh, a year-round school, uh, we have a waiver that's signed by the state that allows us to start before Labor Day 
and uh, then we end late June each year. And what are the benefits of a year-round school? Well, we find that that, uh, that calendar uh, provides opportunities for our children to retain more information over the summer. It also provides us opportunity to work really hard during our on-school times and take periodic breaks. It seems that our faculty is better uh, able to navigate the curriculum. They're able to look back at where they're going and uh, are where they've been and look forward to where they're going. And how many year-round schools are there in the area? Um, we are the only one in the county, and uh, that varies year to year, but I can estimate, based on research uh, a couple years ago, that there are about 20 in the state. Uh, I've been partnering with uh, Jackson Public Schools, and, and it's likely that Hunt Elementary and Jackson will be coming online. I've also been in partnership with Ann Arbor Public Schools, and they're looking to bring a couple of their schools uh, onto the year-round calendar. I'm curious, after speaking at TEDx Lansing, were you able to get some feedback to people that listened to your presentation or, or other educators out there that reacted to what you had to say? Uh, yes, I, I received uh, some positive feedback. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, the, the feedback was, thanks for keeping such a positive look on education. In this tough time when education continues to be dealt um, uh, unfavorable cards, uh, we need to keep the positive uh, rose-colored glasses on and do the best we can with the resources we have. And, and that leads me, I know we've kind of touched on this before, but how are schools going to face the budget cuts? Do you, do you, how do you foresee that happening? Uh, it's going to take time for us to really process that, but the reality is we don't have time. We can't take time uh, out of our day uh, and not work with our children. So we're going to have to be thinking uh, thinking smarter. We're going to have to be working smarter with the resources that we do have. And if you could reform schools in Michigan, what would you do? I'll tell you what. Once you live the year-round calendar, you love it. And I would urge uh, communities to um, consider adopting that year-round model. We're, we're moving the terminology a little bit away from the year-round model to something called the balance calendar. And the balance calendar just means that we uh, are balancing out the school year a little bit more. And how long have you done the year-long calendar for? Yep. Uh, Horizon Elementary in Holt has been a year-round uh, school for 17 years. 17 years. And how long have you been adopting these other things like, like the, the bus route where people can walk to school in the morning and in the community gardens? How long has that been going on We've for? been doing the community garden and our wellness initiatives for about four years. But moreover, uh, just recently have we launched the walking school bus. And uh, our data from the Safe Routes to School surveys uh, showed us that we only had 28 students walking or biking to school out of a population of about 200 that are close enough to do that. After we uh, uh, partnered with the Safe Routes to School and started the walking school bus, we're now well over 100 uh, students that walk to school, which the benefits, as I said, last all day. Wow. And do you know of any other districts that are doing similar initiatives? Um, the walking school bus originated in Australia and is adopted throughout the United States in, uh, in other communities. In Holt, we are the only uh, walking school bus uh, school at this point. Well, it's very exciting. Well, in the, in the studio is David Horneck. He is an elementary school principal in Holt, and he was a featured speaker at TEDx Lansing last weekend. David, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Emily. I really appreciate your time and giving me the opportunity to speak on uh, something I have tremendous passion for. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm out of here. Th thanks again, man. It was good. Wait, time. you were uh, you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are you, are you good to drive? Heck yeah! I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man. You sure? I mean, I can call a cab, or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home. Yeah, you know? yeah. Don't worry. I'm good. Okay. Uh, hey, text me when you get back. Okay. Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive ever. A message from 88.9 The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, 
In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle, and only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10, sit or spit, only on Impact 89 FM. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. On the phone is Andrea Collier. She also spoke at TEDx Lansing this past weekend. Her presentation was called We Must Have Cake and Other Creative Pursuits. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Hi. Thanks, Emily. So what was this presentation about? Well, it was about tapping into your creativity and giving yourself permission to be a creative person, whether you think you really are or not. And your title again was We Must Have Cake and Other Creative Pursuits. Who serves the best cake? <laughs> I do. And why is that? I mean, I, I perfect a good cake recipe. Actually, I changed the topic from uh, the cake thing because I was really into making the connection between cake and creativity. And I was so into it that I was eating too much cake. <laughs> And I had to start, like, watching my Weight Watchers points so I couldn't do cake, so we did crayons instead. So what was the title then? We Must Have Crayons? We Must Have Crayons, yes. Another Everybody green. got a crayon, yes. <laughs> Everybody got a crayon and an index card to create their invitation to themselves to be creative in some way. And how how do you express your creativity? Well, one of the things that I do is I keep a box of 120 Crayolas on the desk. And I sort of what they call mind mapping now. When I'm trying to figure out something in an essay or in a story, I draw little circles and connect lines. And for some reason, it frees me up to do what i got to do. The other things that I do is I do things that are not typical to, to my art, which is writing, so I might be knitting, I might be gardening, I might be making cake. I just get out of the space of what I'm trying to figure out and go into another creative space. Talk about what are the challenges facing individuals these days and how it's it's not as easy to express creativity. Well, okay, not everybody is a writer or a painter, uh, but you can still be creative, yet in this environment, this tough economic environment, it seems like too big a leap of faith sometimes. You know, you got to get a job. you got to keep quiet. This is not the time to make waves. You don't want to lose what you have. Risk is huge. Uh, fear of failure is awful. But sometimes you have to move beyond that to be that creative person. If you've ever been, like, in a brainstorming session and people say, well, the rules are be nice, be polite, Everybody has good ideas. There are no stupid questions and there are no bad ideas. And then when the brainstorming session starts, everybody tells you how your idea won't work. Well, it doesn't really make you want to be very creative, at least not out loud. So I'm inviting people to be creative in spite of all of that. So did your did your presentation have a, have a specific focus on the Lansing area? It had a focus on whatever you chose to be uh, focused on. Uh, in Lansing and in other cities, people are struggling to come up with solutions to a lot of different problems. You just had somebody from the schools on. It takes all kinds of creativity. So when people had their index cards, I invited them to write down the one thing that they want to fix or change or do very, there were 300 people in the audience, and some of them indeed talk about things that they wanted to change in the Lansing community. Other people wanted to go places and climb mountains or write books or do all kind of things. So you got to see those index cards? I, people showed them to me. It was pretty amazing. And what were some of your favorite ones? Uh, somebody wants to climb a mountain in South America. And so it's not just enough to say what you want to do. I'm also interested in the steps that you are willing to take, the creative steps you're willing to take to make that happen. And so for her, 
she was just taking it one day at a time. She says, I'm not even exercising and walking, but I'm going to start doing that first. So you, you mentioned you're a writer. What do you write about? I write for, excuse me, I write for magaz- national magazines and newspapers, and I write a lot about health and health policy issues. So I've been deeply entrenched in health care reform for a little while, and I also write about food and cooking. And I write essays, personal essays, about things that are going on in my life. I see. So going back to the idea of creativity, um, can you talk about the art, the cuts to the arts in Michigan and, and how that can impact the state? I think that the cuts in, the, in Michigan is not the only place that this is happening. But when you start talking about cutting the arts and creative, creative pursuits, you are creating a space that's not as livable and will not attract as many people as you would like. I wouldn't want to live in a place that art wasn't important. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to live in a place where creativity wasn't important, where there weren't books, where there wasn't music, where there weren't plays to go to. And why are the arts important? Because they are the basis of how we think and enjoy and are just, they evoke an emotion that nothing else does, well, maybe except for sports. And I dare say that sports people are creative in their own right. But we feel good, you know, you got to feel good, too. And the arts stimulate our mind, they stimulate our neighborhoods, and I think it's true they do sort of soothe the savage beast. And so when you cut that out, or in the case of in Michigan, where one of the the industries that was making money, which was the film industry, and people were coming to Michigan to do that, you're even seeing them suggest, the governor's office suggests, that there ought to be cuts to the benefits to that. Uh, you know, like, if jobs are hard to come by, why are you creating, why are you cutting out the creative ones? So what do you think that we can do in Michigan to help improve the state as it relates to your topic of the arts and creativity? I think that you start in your own household, your own neighborhood, your own space, and start to create and get passionate about something. Uh, Innovation is creativity as well. Create new businesses. Think about as young people, as some of your listeners, how can we, in addition to just going out and getting a job, make creative opportunities? And you see all over the country young people are being very innovative about what work looks like. And that has a trickle-down effect all over the state. If you're creating new opportunities and being innovative, and I was surprised in doing some uh, research for this talk that Michigan, well, Detroit, is now becoming one of the fastest-growing tech sectors, and I didn't know that. And that might not sound creative, but somebody had to think of, gee, we should replace automobile industry with, in some cases, people are growing food, and some people are, are creating tech companies and doing social media there's a lot going on that we don't know about. So the other thing is we can find out what's going on and see how we can add to that. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. While Detroit gets a lot of negativity, there's a lot going on there. There is. So, well, on the phone is Andrea Collier. She spoke at TEDx Lansing last weekend, and her presentation was called uh, We Must Have Crayons, Not Cake, correct? Yes. And Other Creative Pursuits. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And as the summer vacation season is on the horizon, but gas prices and hotel prices continue to rise, vacations are becoming costly. Impact Exposure's Emmanuel Berry talked with CNBC.com's Christina Cheddar Burke last week about how to plan a getaway without breaking the bank. Burke says staycations are last year. This year is all about finding the best deals to get away. We're actually seeing, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, everyone was talking about the staycation, and people are really tired of it. So the staycations, like, kind of packed its bags and left. People are very adamant about taking vacations. But the problem is going to be is that they're going to find that the prices for everything have gone up. 
Uh, hotel prices on average, according to Travelocity, are up about 11% this year, and hotel room rates have also gone up, and so have gas prices. And most people do drive to their destination, so that's definitely going to make an impact. But I think people are really focused on um, on still getting away. So they're going to be looking for deals. And what we found, actually, is that the deals this year are really being um, kind of phrased in a, in a perk kind of way. So this is kind of the stay two nights, get one night free, or if you book a hotel, you can um, get like a credit for the resort or some, you know, a spa, a massage at the spa or something of that nature. So it's more about perks rather than just plain, you know, discounting. You mentioned uh, gas prices and how that's affecting where people are headed or the expense. Um, any notion of which way gas prices are headed and how this could potentially hurt areas that are, are dependent on uh, those driving tourists? Yeah, well, I know where you're at in Michigan, uh, you guys have recently hit a record high for gas prices. So I know that this is, a, you know, a big issue for, for people in your area. Um, well, what we're looking at right now is gas prices do tend to rise, like historically we see prices go up starting in February right through Memorial Day and then dropping off. And this is because refiners are switching to summer grades of gasoline, which are more expensive to produce. So what's going to happen now is we actually, people have been cutting back on the gas that they're using because of the higher prices. So we've been seeing a buildup in um, the inventory of gasoline. So at the moment, and, and crude oil prices have also come down a little bit. So I think the wholesale gas price, what the, refi- what the, you know, the gas stations are paying for gas has gone down about 16%. And the average, national average uh, price has gone down $0.03 a gallon. But here's the deal, is that gasoline prices, as you probably already know, go up faster than they go down. So refiners, like the gasoline stations, are going to want to hold on to as much profit. So we're going to kind of see them ease down gradually. So, But I think, you know, for a while we're going to definitely see those – prices come down because this is kind of a natural pattern that we see. So because of all these added expenses, and as you said, everything's a little bit more expensive, but people are still taking these vacations. How do the vacations that people are taking today differ from ones they might have taken a couple of years ago? Are people staying closer, flying less, getting the single instead of the jacuzzi suite? (laughs) Well, yeah, trading down to room prices, actually, you know, trading down the, the hotel room is actually one of the biggest strategy people tend to think of. So what we actually were seeing before the gas prices went like above $4 in some states, we were seeing people booking their trips far in advance. As the prices went up, now we're seeing the bookings closer to when people are staying. And I think that's because people are trying to see what their budgets are like. And so they may, instead of staying at a four-star hotel, they may trade down to a three-star hotel or they may shorten their trip by a day. Uh, that said, what's interesting is that when you think about some of the most popular places to go to, I'm talking about Orlando, New York, uh, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Cancun, those are the places where people are going to find the best deals because the capacity, uh, there's so many more rooms and so many more flights going there. And, and hotels and airlines are always going to have empty beds and empty Um, empty hotel rooms. So what we want to do, the best tip that I can give people, and this is something that most people overlook, is book a package deal. If you book your airfare in your hotel at the same time, the cost of the trip will go down, sometimes by as much as $500. That was a study that uh, Travelocity had done, Um, and that's an incredible savings. And the reason is hotels and airlines aren't letting you know how much they're cutting the ticket price because it's all lumped together. So it's the best-kept travel secret in the world, basically. Yeah, people don't use it nearly as much as they should. So what are some summer deals for places? You, You mentioned Orlando and some of those more popular places. What are some other spots that people can hit up to get the most bang for their buck? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we found uh, on Expedia they, they have a summer sale, and so what they're doing is cutting um, hotel and airfare rates by about 30%. 
And they're also throwing in a lot of those perks that I talked about, the massages, the spa credits. Um, Expedia right now had a package for for Hawaii. There's some packages for Hawaii that are pretty discounted. Um, I saw one package from New York to Waikiki staying at the Marriott, which is a four-star hotel, for $1,700 for two people. So, I mean, that's an incredible deal. But um, what you want to look at is with domestic airfares up about 11%, if you're flying, if your rate is about is lower than 11% on average, you're, you're saving money on a relative basis. So we found um, increases year over year below 11% in South Florida, Boston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Anchorage, Phoenix, New Orleans, San Antonio. So there's like a lot of different places where people could find relative bargains. What about cruises? How do those um, stack up against these other vacation options? I'm glad you reminded me of that. That actually, cruises actually are a very good deal this year. Um, they're, they're one of the areas where we're seeing a lot of perks being thrown in. Uh, a lot of offers for stay a couple days, get a day free, and the onboard ship credits and even free excursions off off the ship for when you arrive in your destination. What you need to remember is that some areas are more popular. Their actual peak season isn't the summer. So when you're going to Cancun or the Caribbean and any of those destinations, their peak season is the winter. So um, if you're heading there in the summer, you're really going to save a lot of money. All right, so one last quick question before we uh, let you go. What's your ultimate vacation on a budget? <laughs> My ulti- I mean, I actually have to tell you, those. I- I've been to Hawaii once before, and when I was hearing about those uh, deals in Hawaii, I was, you know, that's pretty exciting, <laughs> exciting to me. I think, that, you know, that sounded amazing, that, that package, compared to what I know that I spent and I went, back, mm-hmm. went to Hawaii about 10 years ago, so... I know that that's a really great deal. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. General, we've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the Impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on The Impact. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Chris Hansen. He is an MSU alum who is now a correspondent for Dateline NBC. Chris Hansen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Emily. You worked in local TV news in Detroit. I'm curious, what did you learn there that helped you do national reports? Well, you know, Detroit was one of those, and still is, just a great news town. And, you know, with great characters and politics and law enforcement and and there, you know, there was a never-ending stream of, of, of big news stories, and 
it was a great place to uh, really, you know, hone my skills and, and learn about being a reporter and, and reacting quickly to breaking news. Uh, you know, I started in Lansing at uh, WILX and then went to Tampa and, and uh, spent 10 years in Detroit before I went to uh, NBC. So it was, it, was, it, it was and is a great place to work. Were there any big surprises going from being a, a local news um, reporter to going onto the national scene? Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to go right from local news into, you know, the news magazine world, and it's a different way of storytelling. You know, I, I was used to, you know, knocking out, uh, you know, a two-minute uh, story and, and, you know, start to finish in, in, in one day and, and went to doing, you know, 15-minute long stories and ultimately hour-long stories, or as in you know, the case for tonight, two-hour-long stories. And it's a different way of writing, it's a different way of interviewing, and it's a different way of of, um, of presenting, and, and I was very fortunate to have some very talented behind-the-scenes rabbis here who, who you know, shepherded me through that transition and, and, and taught me how to taught me how to do it. Uh, I think pretty well. <laughs> you can be the judge of that. And, and you've done many investigative reports around the world covering a broad range of serious issues. What was your favorite report you've ever done? You know, that's a wonderful question, and it's, it's a hard one to answer because, the, you know, I have such a talented, you know, cast of producers who, you know, who help me put these things together and, and in, in many cases, you know, bring in the actual idea for the story. Um, I would have to say that one that perhaps had, you know, the most impact, though, was when we were in Cambodia undercover uh, and we infiltrated, uh, you know, the human sex trafficking trade there and... and uh, Sex tourism, and uh, we got involved with a NGO called the International Justice Mission, and, and we followed along as they rescued some 40, you know, young women out of these brothels, and some kids as young as five, six years old, and then to go back five years later after the story <clears throat> and reintroduce ourselves to some of these girls and the progress that they made. You know, you see them in the brothel, then you see them going to school and blossoming as a as a 13 or 14 year old. I mean, it really. You know, those are images that I, that never leave my mind. What do you think is the relevance and role of investigative journalism? That that what role does it play in today's media? Well, I think that <clears throat> impact reporting using enterprising techniques like hidden cameras and, and just good old-fashioned digging, you know, it's a way to you know create awareness and and a dialogue that that doesn't exist. And if you, when you educate and change people's lives in, in a meaningful way. I mean, those are our jobs, you know, to expose, you know, things that shouldn't be going on and to, to highlight the things that, that, that should be going on. Um, you know, we're here to keep people on their toes. Have you ever been in a, put in a situation where you feared for your own safety when reporting? Uh, yeah, <laughs> a couple times. In fact, uh, uh, we have a story on Sunday night, uh, uh, the Hansen Files. We do two different investigations, and in one of them, <clears throat> one of the, one of the uh, targets of our affection, uh, literally flips out and it turns into you know almost a street brawl he starts swinging unfortunately we had uh, security with us but it was a it was there were some hairy moments there and you know we've been overseas and and uh you know encountered some some uh you know times where you know you get detained and you're not sure what's going to happen and you're trying to hide the tapes and get everything out of there but uh we 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 go through a security protocol every time we do an investigation so i feel confident and, and pretty darn secure each time we want to do something like that. And you've, you've also reported on al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks. I'm curious, sure. what, what was it like to be a part of the media um, when when everyone was covering bin Laden's death? You know, it, it, it sort of caught us <clears throat> a little bit by surprise. I mean, it was, it was really one of the best-kept secrets um, that, that I can remember in a long time. You know, it was a Sunday night, as you know, and... and you know, I'm 10, 15, 10, 30, you know, I started to get, like everybody else, you know, cell phone calls saying, hey, just be on your toes, something's happening, and something what, well, I can't say, but, you know, it's going to come out soon, and it's terror-related, and it's in Pakistan, and okay, fine, and, you know, you can start to put two and two together, and, and um, you know, then the president made the announcement, and, and you know, it, it, it sort of seemed for a while like maybe they would never find him, but... You know, more and more intelligence sources were saying, no, he's not in a cave someplace. He's, you know, he's, he's holed up someplace fairly comfortable, likely in Pakistan, likely with the knowledge of, of uh, certain elements of, you know, Pakistani intelligence and likely funded by certain people uh, 
in Saudi Arabia. And I think once they can, once they finish going through all the evidence, you know, that they that they dragged out of the the compound, I think we're going to have specific names and identities of, of people who helped uh, who helped him and uh, knew he was there. Now, I'm sure you've done, you did reports as a, as a student here at MSU, um, you know, journalistic reports. Was, was there ever a story that sticks in your mind from when you were a student here at MSU? Uh, yeah, a lot of them. I mean, I can remember, you know, back when, um, you know, that game Dungeons and Dragons was going on and there was a young uh, student at Michigan State who got involved in all this and, and it was pretty dramatic. Uh, I remember I was doing a story on all the steam tunnels underneath the campus, and kids were going down there and were able to access <laughs> different buildings going through there. It was, it was kind of interesting. And then, you know, um, um, you know, from sports stories, you know, I was there in Magic Johnson's class, so you know, my sophomore year, winning the NC2A, and that was thrilling. And, and um, you know, later as a reporter in Lansing and just covering the state capitol, it was it was a really great lesson on how you know politics works. And, at the, at the local level. It's a wonderful experience. Well, on the phone is Chris Hansen. He is an MSU alum who is now a correspondent for Dateline NBC. Chris, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want mysmokefreeapartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. Mysmokefreeapartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Munoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Erica Shekel. She took part on a 10-day journey, which is called the Freedom Ride, and it retraced the Freedom Ride that took place 50 years ago to fight for civil rights in America. Welcome to the show, Erica Shekel. Thank you. You were part of 40 participants that took place um, on the Freedom Ride out of 1,000 applications. How were you chosen, and what did you have to do to, to apply? Um, for the application, we had um, three essays where we had to talk about our um, campus involvement. Um, and then another one of the essays was actually about um, social media and whether or not we thought it was an effective form of affecting change. So we were chosen um, based on those three essays. And then also we had uh, two references. So why do you think you were chosen out of the 1,000 applications? Um, I think I was chosen um, because I have a couple of areas in which interesting areas that are sort of my expertise. Um, I do a lot of work with LGBT rights, like lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender rights. Um, I did a lot of that in high school, and then I do different sort of activism with that in college. Um, and also I have some inter interesting perspectives on race um, sort of related to my hometown. And what is your hometown? Um, I am from Howell, Michigan. Which give us a little history there. Um, Howell is a small community. It's about 40 minutes from East Lansing. Um, it's my hometown where I was born, raised, and still live there. Um, and it has the stereotype. A lot of people think that it's like a hotbed for the KKK, which is actually a huge misconception. Um, 
there was a KKK leader who lived in Howell um, back in the 80s who did have some rallies and cross burnings on his property, but he in no way represented represented the um, views of the re residents of Howell. Um, unfortunately, though, we get the stereotype of being racist um, and the fact that our community is rather homogenous. It's, you know, 96 or 98 percent white doesn't really help us erase that stereotype. So that sort of um, growing up with that stereotype placed upon me for, you know, no reason at all sort of was part of the reason why I was interested in participating in the Freedom Rides. So you wouldn't consider Howell to be a town where, where there's some race issues as far as, you know, the, the thoughts of, that go through people's heads? I think any town has, you know, racist individuals. Um, Howell is no different. There are some racist individuals, but it's just, it's not unlike any other town. Um, unfortunately, it's just the one that gets the stereotype of that. So why else did you decide to go on the Freedom Ride? What, what, what else inspired you? Um, I wanted to go on the Freedom Ride because ever since high school, I've always had um, a strong interest in activism, and I've always had a great respect for activists. Um, one of my goals for the Freedom Ride was actually to speak with the students um, because they have done incredible things in their campuses and in their communities. Um, so I wanted to be able to learn from them because they're experts in a variety of areas in which I don't have expertise. So I, cut, I sort of approached it as a, an educational opportunity for myself. And talk about the backgrounds of a lot of people on the trip and what did you learn from them? Goodness, there were, there were many students from all over the place. There was a girl from um, Alaska who uh, lives a, a subsistence lifestyle there. Um, it takes her, it's a five-hour drive for her family to go to the grocery store. Um, there were a few international students, um, one student from China, uh, you know, a student from Alabama, students from, you know, just all over the country. There was a, a, Pal a Palestinian girl there as well who wears a hijab, and, uh, you know, it was, she was hilarious because I've never spoken with, you know, a, a Muslim student before, but she was a lot of fun to be around and talk with. So just a lot of amazing people from all walks of life, really. And talk about what was the daily schedule like? What did you do on the trip? Um, we got up very early each morning. Um, we were usually 15 to 30 minutes late to the bus, but um, get up early around 7 or 8, get on the bus. We'd go to the next city over, and um, we would go to different museums or historical locations, like, for example, um, where some of the first lunch counter sit-ins to desegregate lunch counters. We went to some of those. We visited... Um, the place where Martin Luther King is buried. Um, we would listen to all kinds of uh, speakers and civil rights um, activists, as well as some original Freedom Riders. Some of them were traveling with us, but others we met at certain cities along the way, and we you know, had conversations with them. So you also, did you document this trip along the way? Yes, along the way, um, I took a ton of photographs and a lot of video. Um, some of them have been posted on the uh, PBS has a, a website, a blog um, that the students were contributing to. So I have a couple videos on there now and a couple essays, as long as well as um, many of my photos have you know made their way onto the blog as well. So it's it's it was it was well documented. <laughs> and where can people go to see that? Um, you can go to pbs.org/freedomriders. So talk about the original Freedom Ride, and, and what did they accomplish? Um, they really, what the original Freedom Riders accomplished was they really brought an awareness to the country um, of civil rights issues and injustices. Um, I think a, a major reason why the Freedom Rides were successful were actually because the media was there. Um, this was when, you know, television was getting big, and so people could actually see not only photographs, but video footage of these riders being beaten and brutalized, and that really woke the country up to these injustices and, you know, really empathizing with the Freedom Riders. And had you, have you ever traveled much throughout the United States before? Um, I've traveled a little bit. Um, I've, I've been to Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, but I've never been to the Deep South. Um, I've never been to Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana. So it was very interesting seeing the, the landscape there and also where we went to these places. We were, tr we were treated like dignitaries. Um, we ate very well. They, always, you know, they would always have amazing banquets for all of us. Um, so it was really interesting to actually, you know, instead of having like McDonald's or Taco Bell, we would have like the actual food that they eat. So 
I developed a strong liking for sweet tea <laughs> in the South, so um, in grits as well. So it was very interesting seeing a different part of the country. How would you compare the people in the South to those that live in Michigan? Um, I think the people in the South, I mean, there's there's the whole the stereotype of Southern hospitality. And the people we did meet were amazing. They were amazingly warm and welcoming to us. Um, they really did treat us like celebrities. A lot of the students, you know, we didn't quite understand. We felt like it was undeserved that we, you know, haven't done anything yet to deserve it. But they were absolutely in love with us. So it was, it was really great to, to meet with them and speak with them and, you know, hear their own stories. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious, what reaction have you gotten from people as far as, as them seeing you guys doing this trip over again, you know, 50 years later, the Freedom Ride? What have been the reactions, and what do you think this means to other people that observed you guys doing this? A lot of the people who we met along the way were amazed with a lot of the work that um, we students are already doing. Um, and they've, you know, they've a lot of them have done their own work in civil rights areas or just other issues in general, and so... It really brought them hope to be able to see, you know, 40 students who are very engaged and care very much about our communities and who are actually, you know, making progress on some very difficult issues that, you know, aren't as easy to address, you know, these days in 2011. So um, they have a lot of high hopes for us. And so we're hoping um, certainly that we can live up to those hopes. And did this did this trip inspire you to become an activist in other areas that you haven't really touched on before? It's definitely brought in a, a, a greater awareness of different issues. Um, I'm always, I'm lately, I've been very aware of you know different people's different identities, whether it's race or gender, and just sort of being aware of you know who I'm around in a room. Um, so it's, it's brought me a greater awareness in that sense. And also now that I'm friends with a lot of with all of the student freedom writers on Facebook, you know they're always posting about various issues they're passionate about, like immigration or women's rights or. Um, you know, international issues and things like that. So it's kind of also brought an awareness of those issues that I wasn't paying attention to before. And what was your favorite part about the whole trip? I think one of the favorite things about my trip was just the, how quickly the students and the original Freedom Riders, we all became like an incredibly close family. By day three or four, like we were, you know, we would go to museums or, you know, speak with some of the original Freedom Riders, and we were already tearing up and, you know, crying. It was a very emotional trip. Um, we not only retraced the 1961 Freedom Ride route, but we, in a, in a sense, we relived it. And that was incredibly powerful just to bond with people and to really feel like we're all on the same plane. We're all working toward one common goal of just bettering our the, the global community. And did the original Freedom Riders also go on the trip, or you just met them along the way? Um, we had a few original Freedom Riders who did were on the bus with us the entire route. Um, we had Rip Patton, Helen and Bob Singleton, and uh, Joan Mulholland. Um, we met a few along the way. Some of them joined us towards the end of it, but um, we did have four that did stay stay with us for the entire trip. And what do you think it was like for them to see you guys relive that trip 50 years later? I think I think it meant a lot to them to be able to pass on their wisdom and their knowledge and just to see that it's still living, it's still living on in us that, you know, even when they do pass away, they know that they've touched our lives and that we will continue the work that they started. Well, in the studio is Erica Sheckles. She was took place in the Freedom Ride. It was a 10-day journey retracing the ride that took place 50 years ago to fight for civil rights. Erica, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features spoken word artist Kelly Zen Yi Tsai. She was an artist in residence at MSU's Residential College of Arts and Humanities this year. And this is her poem titled Self Centered. If I was the center of everything for a day, everything would be aimed towards, dictated by, catered to, tailored for, five foot two, tattooed Asian females. When you turned on the television, no Martha Stewart, Tom Brokaw, Katie Couric, or Stephen Colbert, just five foot two, tattooed Asian females, giving makeup tips for the Asian eye, instructions on how to raise children multilingually in America, advertisements for custom designed builders who retrofit houses for the fabulously petite news that tells of the latest community organizing campaigns and where the hottest DJ set is for that night. Everything catered to me. 
All of the movies would tell the stories of wayward liberated activist brainiac single girls and our pot dealer MC boyfriends, healing wounds with family members overseas while fighting for fair wages for factory workers around the world, which would be easy. Since all of the governments would be run by five foot two tattooed Asian females, we'd wave to the cameras enthusiastically, give out free sandwiches to the entire world every Wednesday, we'd match our lip gloss to our fair trade boots and throw a dance party every time we signed a truly revolutionary bill. And I'd get to ask people dumb questions all day. Cause isn't everybody a five foot two tattooed Asian female and isn't it so great to be us? But you know what? I might let you non five foot two non-tattooed, non-Asian, non-females. I might let you keep your languages. I might even give you equal access to education and healthcare too. I might even share the airwaves and our houses of government. Give you a shot at working your way up in our financial institutions because I know that there is no you without me. And from the only to the other, I know there's no me without you. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.